As Jana said, we're starting a new series today. We're continuing our now six-month streak in the Old Testament, and we're going to be uh, looking at the book of Daniel over the next few weeks. Last week, if you were here, hopefully you remember we talked about the book of Ruth, and the story of Ruth is the story of a foreigner in Israel, right? The book of Daniel is kind of like the mirror image of that. It's the story of an Israelite in a foreign land, in Babylon. And I felt led to speak on this because I feel like Daniel's story is very relevant for all of us because all of us are, in a sense, living in a foreign land. Uh, Some of us are literally not in our home country. Some of us were born somewhere else. Uh, But all of us here, if we are followers of Christ, we are foreigners. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2.11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Aliens and strangers in the world. Do you live in the world? The answer is yes, you do. If you're not sure, you live in the world. And if you do, and if you're a follower of Christ, then you are a foreigner. Because your true home is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is much bigger than uh, the literal nation of Israel. It's much bigger than the United States. It's much bigger than any one people group or ethnicity. The kingdom of God is made up of people from every tribe, every nation, every language. And so that is where our true citizenship lies, in the kingdom of heaven. So whatever country we are in, uh, wherever we're from, we should feel a little bit out of place. There are times where we should feel like fish out of water. Uh, We should feel like our values and our way of understanding the world are not in perfect sync with the surrounding culture around us. Because as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are ultimately foreigners and strangers in the world. Now, Daniel was literally an alien in Babylon. So his story gives us a physical example of our spiritual situation. And so I think we can learn a lot from that story. So, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to the book of Daniel. Uh, It's near the end of the Old Testament, right after the book of Ezekiel. And as you turn there, I will say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this very warm morning. And uh, we pray, Lord, that in spite of the heat, that you would help us to be attentive to whatever it is Uh, your Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us through this story. God, open our our ears and our minds and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting from the top. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his land, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. 
the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So I want us to stop here for a moment and to imagine what it would have been like to be uh, these young men. They've grown up in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism. They have probably worshipped Israel's God at the Holy Temple, which was believed to be God's dwelling place on earth. And now the king of a pagan nation has come and dominated the city, right? Dominated the king and even apparently demonstrated dominance over your God. Right? Because it says that he took what belonged to Israel's God and then he moved it to the temple of his God, the God of Marduk, which was a power play that was a way of saying, my God is stronger than your God. And now, to add insult to injury, these young men from Judah are being forced to learn this enemy culture and to serve this enemy culture. And you can see Nebuchadnezzar has a plan here. He wants to take the best and the brightest from the young generation in Jerusalem and then make them culturally Babylonian. And he's not subtle about it at all, right? Remember, it says that these men are given new names. Their Jewish names are replaced with Babylonian ones. Daniel is now Belshazzar. Can you imagine if someone took you to another country and then said, forget your old name, you're going to be Belshazzar now? I'd be like... I'd prefer something other than that. <laughs> but can you imagine how disempowering that would feel? Being forced to receive a new name is, is a way of somebody saying to you, forget about the culture that you grew up in. You belong to us now. Don't try to retain your old ways. And of course, this is a power play that's occurred throughout history in many places around the world. It, it happened here with slavery when people were brought over from Africa. They were forced to have new names and was a way of saying, you belong to us now, forget about your old culture, don't try to retain your old ways. But Daniel isn't willing to accept this message. Let's keep reading in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So Daniel is concerned that if he eats this royal food, it's in some way going to dishonor God. Now that should lead us to the question, well, why would he be worried about that? Why would it be wrong for him to eat the king's food? And I can think of two main reasons why this would be. So first reason is because God had given the nation of Israel some very specific rules surrounding food. Rules about what you could and could not eat, rules about how that food needed to be prepared. And Daniel would have no confidence that the king was going to follow any of those rules. Now today, those kind of dietary laws, they don't apply to us. But in Daniel's day, those laws were some of the key ways that you expressed your devotion to your God. They were a key part of faithfulness to God. So Daniel would be concerned about eating the king's food for that reason. And the second reason is because this food that was from the king's storehouses, it would have been probably offered to idols or ritually dedicated uh, to idols before it made its way to uh, Daniel's table. 
So to eat that food would be to, in some sense, participate in the worship of Babylon's gods. So Daniel says to the chief official, can I please not eat this food? So let's look at what happens next, continuing in verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord and king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. I think you've really got to give credit to Daniel here for his resolve. I don't know about you, but if I was in his situation, I'd be pretty tempted to eat the king's food. I'm sure it was the best stuff around. And if I reached a point where my conscience overcame that temptation, and I said to the chief official, could I please eat something else? And then the chief official turned me down, I think I'd be, just let it go at that point. I think I'd say, well, God, I tried. You know I got to eat. I'm just going to eat what they give me. But Daniel is persistent. He goes to the next person down, down the pecking order, to the guard who the chief official has appointed over him. And he proposes a test to the guard. He says, give us nothing but vegetables and water for 10 days and then compare us with the people who eat the king's food. And if we look bad, you can do whatever you need to do. Right? So what happens? Continuing in verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. In recent years, some Christians have read this part of Daniel's story and they've been inspired to do what he did, quite literally. And it's led many churches to promote something called the Daniel Fast. Maybe you've, Has anyone heard of this? Raise your hand if you've, you've heard of it. So they encourage people for three weeks uh, to commit to a plant-based diet, and you abstain from meat, wine, caffeine, uh, any animal-based products. There's Daniel Fast blogs online. There's a book that came out in 2010. Uh, recently, it got some media attention. I think it was earlier this year when Chris Pratt, the actor, um, you might know him from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or Parks and Recreation, he was on the Colbert Show and he said that he had done the Daniel Fast, that his church uh, was doing the Daniel Fast for Lent and he was participating in that. Time Magazine even wrote an article about Chris Pratt doing the Daniel Fast. So kind of neat to hear about an A-list celebrity doing something like that. Now I want to say something about this whole Daniel Fast phenomenon. So first, I don't think it's a bad thing, okay? If you wanna try a plant-based diet, either to improve your health or as a spiritual discipline, you know, giving something up to God, be my guest. I won't complain about that. But I want us to be very careful not to miss the point of the, this part of the story here. The point of this part of the story is not that God wants you to eat vegetables 
And if you eat vegetables, you're going to be healthier than everybody who eats the other stuff too. In fact, the word that gets translated here as vegetables, it's a little hard to translate. And I don't think vegetables is the best translation. Literally, the word refers to the seeds used for animal feed, fodder, or planting. And this word actually doesn't appear anywhere in Hebrew or Akkadian referring to human food. So this isn't the stuff that people are supposed to eat. Uh, it's plant-based, but it's not necessarily higher quality. So why do I bring this up? Well, I don't want us to think Daniel and his friends were healthier because they ate more nutritious food than everybody else. Daniel and his friends likely weren't eating more nutritious food. Um, the king's food was probably higher quality than what they were eating. But the reason that Daniel and his friends were healthier was because God intervened. Right? God did a miracle. God supernaturally acted. So, point of the story is not that vegetables are good for you, although they are. Kids, you should eat your vegetables. But the point is that God is good for you. Notice the distinction there. It's an important one. And more specifically, following God is good for you. Trusting him is good for you. Even when it's countercultural, even when it's hard, even when it looks silly to the people around you, even when it involves a risk, following God is worth it. That's the point here. Now, Daniel was faithful to God in exile. Even though it was countercultural, even though it was hard, even though his faithfulness probably looked silly to some of the people around him. I mean, why turn down the king's food, right? It's good food. It's coming to you for free. It's crazy to turn that down. So the question that Daniel should inspire us to ask is, what does it look like for us to be faithful to God in our exile? As foreigners and strangers in 21st century America, what does it look like for us to be faithful to God. And generally speaking, here is what Daniel's story reminds us. Faithfulness to God means not assimilating. Not assimilating. And I just want to confess right now that I'm indebted to Tim Keller for the structure of the insights in this sermon, uh, the pastor in New York City, Tim Keller. Assimilation, what's, that's a fancy sociological word. What does it mean? Assimilation is when a minority group absorbs the values and views of the majority culture. Right? Um, it's when a minority group adopts the same worldview, same values, same perspective, same attitude. Immigrants sometimes lament when their children or their grandchildren uh, have assimilated because that means that they no longer have the values or perspective of their ancestors. They've kind of just completely become uh, part of the culture that they are now in, for better or for worse. But notice, Daniel doesn't just absorb his surrounding Babylonian culture, right? And we shouldn't just absorb our surrounding culture either. And I think this is a really important message for us to hear uh, especially us in the church in America, because the church in America has a little bit of a problem of assuming that American values equal Jesus' values. And 
there is some overlap there. I don't want to deny that. But American values and Jesus' values are not necessarily one and the same thing. And if we assume that they are, then we have become culturally assimilated. We're not acting like the aliens and strangers in the world that we are. So we have to ask ourselves some, some questions. Questions like, what determines my idea of what the good life looks like? Is it Jesus or is it the American dream? What determines my sexual ethics? Is it Jesus or Hollywood? What directs how I use my money? Jesus or consumerism? What determines how I treat those who are poor and disadvantaged? Is it Jesus or politics? What determines my views on violence and how I treat my enemies? Jesus or American culture? And foundationally, what has my primary allegiance? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? Is it country or family? What is it? See, when we're culturally assimilated, we either don't even consider what Jesus would say in answer to these questions, or we just automatically assume that Jesus must agree with our culture's values. We just assume Jesus, Jesus agrees. And if we ever encounter something in Scripture that seems to suggest that Jesus doesn't agree, we just reflexively argue, well, he must not mean that. Or we try not to pay attention to it. But when we're not assimilated, we allow Jesus to critique our culture. And we affirm what Jesus affirms in our culture, and we repent of what Jesus calls us to turn from in our culture, even if it makes us look silly to people around us. You know, sometimes, and I think I've been guilty of this, sometimes we convince ourselves that assimilation is actually a good thing. Uh, because we tell ourselves, well, you know, my friends and neighbors, they'll be more interested in following Christ if they see that I'm just like them. But I don't think that's true. I mean, you know, people want to see that Christians are relatable and that they're honest and authentic, yes. But they're not going to find our faith compelling if we have exactly the same values, same perspective, same views on things, same same attitude as the culture we're in. You know, why would they care about our faith if it's indistinguishable from the world? Why even bother? When Jesus critiques our culture, it can be offensive. It can be hard to hear. But at least it's interesting. <laughs> A Jesus who never critiques our culture or challenges us is boring. And if we want people to care about following Jesus, we have to show them Jesus is not boring. Jesus is challenging. Jesus takes the world's values and he turns them on their head, turns them upside down. Have you ever read the Beatitudes? That's completely non-intuitive values. But if we just assimilate, people don't see that. People don't see how interesting and challenging Jesus is. So Daniel reminds us, don't just assimilate, don't just absorb the values of Babylon or the values of America. Don't just eat whatever the culture is giving you. And I 
mean that metaphorically, of course. Whatever the, cu the culture serves us, we shouldn't just eat it without reservation, right? And if we think, you know what, I don't think I'm supposed to eat this, we should trust that if we choose not to, we're still going to thrive. We're going to be okay. But there's another lesson in Daniel, which is that we don't need to do the opposite of assimilating either. See, the opposite extreme of assimilation is total separation. Total separation. And total separation is when we say, you know what, this culture, it's so wicked, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm just going to band together with other Christians and we're going to remove ourselves from the world as much as we possibly can. We're just going to read our Christian books and listen to our Christian music and watch our Christian movies and start our Christian businesses and send our kids to our Christian schools and spend most of our time in church and have nothing to do with that godless, worldly, majority culture. But the book of Daniel models something very different from us, for that, something very different for us, right? Because as it shows Daniel refusing to assimilate, it also shows him participating in the culture that God has placed him in. And as he participates in that culture, he becomes a person of influence and even serves in the royal court. Notice that earlier we were told that when Daniel was taken to Babylon, he was taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. Taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. And that would mean Daniel was taught a lot of stuff that he disagreed with. A lot of stuff that would not jive with his Israelite upbringing. You know, like many Christian kids who go off to a public university. But unlike with the king's food, he never said, I cannot defile myself with this information, right? He still learned it. And I'm sure he didn't accept all of it, but he learned it. And he learned it well. And this was the result. Listen to what it says in verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The, ting, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So Daniel participates in the culture that God has placed him in, and God blesses him as he does that. He becomes someone who's known for being especially good at what he does. And what ends up happening in chapter 2 is really interesting. I'm not going to read it word for word because we don't have enough time. I encourage you to read it on your own this week. But what happens is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he wants somebody who can interpret this dream for him. But he's, for some reason, he's really skeptical of all of the astrologers and enchanters and wise men in the kingdom. And so he says to them, I want you to tell me what my dream was before you interpret it. So he's kind of like, you know, somebody who calls a psychic hotline and says, tell me what my name is before we do anything else, right? And all of the king's astrologers and magicians are like, oh, there's not a man on earth who can do what you're asking. This is impossible. 
And Nebuchadnezzar has what I would call an overreaction to that. He gets very, very upset, and he sends out this order that all the wise men in Babylon should be killed. They're worthless. Let's get rid of them. And so now Daniel's life is in danger. And when Daniel finds out about this order for execution, he, he goes to the king and he pleads with him to give him a chance to interpret the dream. But he says, I'm going to need a little bit of time, okay? And the king agrees, which I imagine probably has something to do with the fact that the king already regards him as ten times better than everybody else, right? Daniel has already proved himself to the king. So Daniel goes home. This was why he asked for more time. He goes home and he prays. And he encourages his friends, pray. Pray that God would reveal to us what this dream is. And it works. God reveals the dream, and Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he interprets the dream, and he does something very significant. He gives God the credit. He doesn't give Nebuchadnezzar's God, Marduk, the credit. He doesn't give himself the credit. He gives God the credit. Listen to this exchange between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel in chapter 2. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. So he says the same thing as all the other wise men, right? But then he adds this, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And then he goes on to interpret the dream. And when he finishes, this is what happens. Skipping to verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And I want us to realize how amazing it is that Nebuchadnezzar is saying this right now. Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Your God, the God whose temple I robbed, the God whose city I besieged, the God who, whose people I plundered. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, that God is the God of gods. Now, why would he do that? It's because of what God has shown to him through Daniel. Through Daniel, right? This is happening because Daniel refused to assimilate to the Babylonian culture, but he also refused to separate from the Babylonian culture. He participated. When we separate, when we just pull out of the culture, we don't give people like Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity to see that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We just hole up in our little Christian bubbles and nothing changes. But when we participate in the culture faithfully, God works through that. So here's what I want you to take away this morning. Okay? Remember, in this world, like Daniel, we are foreigners in exile. Wherever you are from, literally, you are a foreigner in exile. Don't assimilate to the culture. Don't separate from the culture. Follow God and participate in the culture. Don't assimilate, don't separate, follow God and participate.
what I think we see in Daniel is a practical example of what Jesus calls us to be in the New Testament. Jesus says that we are called to be like two things, like salt and light. Like salt and light in regard to the way that we relate to the culture around us. Uh, he says in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Now what does that mean? Well first, salt. Uh, in the days before refrigeration, the way that you kept meat from spoiling was by putting spices on it, including salt. That helped it to last longer. So when Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth, it's like he's saying, my followers are supposed to be the people who prevent the spoiling of society. The people who keep it from rotting away, rotting away due to the sins of greed and lust and violence. We're supposed to be the people who preserve the society. And then the second metaphor, light, well, what does light do? Light reveals, right? So what Jesus is saying there is we are supposed to be the kind of people who illuminate what is true. We show the truth. We proclaim the truth. What's hidden and in darkness, we help bring to the light. But Jesus also warns us in this same chapter 5 where he talks about salt and light. He warns us that we can lose our saltiness and we can hide our light. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt of the earth loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And then when he says, you are the light of the world, he immediately says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So in both of these examples, I think we see Jesus warning us against assimilation and separation, right? Salt can't preserve anything if it stops being salt. And in the same way, if, if we just assimilate to the culture, we can't be salt. We can't help the culture keep from rotting, right? And we can't be the light of the world if we hide our light. You know, we can't help people know who God is if we just separate, if we just pull ourselves out and, you know, hide our light underneath something. So don't assimilate, don't separate, participate. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, this is a really high calling that you call us to, being salt and light, um, being foreigners in exile and remaining faithful in the midst of that. And we know that we cannot do it, Lord, without your Spirit's power working in us. And so, Lord, we invite you to do that. God, help us to, to walk that narrow path so that we don't just give up what we believe to the surrounding culture, and we also don't just separate it from it, Lord. Help us, Lord, to engage faithfully, Lord. Help us to love the world, but not be of the world. And help us to be inspired, Lord, by this example of Daniel. 
We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.